Whether you're thinking about giving the gift of art or marking a milestone in your life like a new job, anniversary or buying your first house with a piece, art is a unique way to celebrate those special moments. Now in its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over a 1,000 original artworks from everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to a curated selection of ones to watch and and don't forget, National Art Pass holders can enjoy 50% off tickets to fairs by showing their pass on the door or by using the code ARTFUND online. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. Thanks to our sponsor, the Affordable Art Fair, for making this podcast possible. As you can probably tell, visiting galleries and museums is one of my absolute favourite activities. And our sponsor, the National Art Pass, makes that a whole lot easier, smoother and cheaper for us art lovers and gallery goers. Not only does the National Art Pass grant you free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, such as Kensington Palace, Cardiff Castle, the Royal Pavilion and the Horniman Museum, it also gives 50% of major exhibitions, including the British Museum, Tate, the V&A and many more. Membership is just £73 for an entire year, and for those under 30, it's a mere 45 and for lucky Great Women Artists listeners, you can also receive an exclusive tote bag designed by Malika Fav when you buy a National Art Pass by entering the code GREAT at checkout. Just go to artfund.org slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest today is the brilliant and expert curator of London's Whitechapel Gallery, Laura Smith. Responsible for curating contemporary and historic exhibitions and commissions, Laura's recent shows include artist Helen Kamek, a major exhibition that celebrated the also Turner Prize winning Kamek as the seventh winner of the Max Mara Art Prize for Women, and next year we'll also see her work with 2020's winner, to be announced soon. Previous exhibitions also include the staggering first major UK survey of the work of artist duo Elm Green and Dragset, and she is currently working on two very exciting, yet to be announced, exhibitions for 2020 and 2022, which I am sure will be very appealing for Great Women Artists listeners. Laura is also a great writer on modern and contemporary art, who has written on the likes of Lisa Bryce, as well as contributing to a chapter to Oxford University Press's long-awaited Virginia Woolf Reader on Woolf's Influence on the Visual Arts. Prior to Whitechapel, Laura was curator at Tate from 2012 to 2018, where she curated a series of historic and contemporary projects by artists, including the likes of Frances McGurn, Rebecca Warren, to Claude Cahoon and Jessica Warboys, plus the Turner Prize in 2016. 
But Laura was also the curator of the sensational touring exhibition, Virginia Woolf, an exhibition inspired by her writings in 2018, a large scale group exhibition that celebrated Woolf's writings and feminism through the work of more than 80 international and trans-historic artists who featured the likes of Vanessa Bell, Gwen John, Alina Shapovsniko, Izzy Wood, Zanelli Maholi, but also the great surrealist Eileen Agar, who we are very excitingly going to be discussing today. Welcome, Laura. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you very much for that lovely introduction. (laughs) So, I mean, this exhibition, as you know, as I always talk to you about it, just blew me away. It started at Tate St. Ives that moved to Pallet House, where I was lucky enough to see it twice, (laughs) and then to the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. And I think what was so groundbreaking about this show particularly was seeing all these artists in dialogue with each other, but also finally being able to see so many of these artists who I've wanted to see for so long in the flesh. Eileen Agar, of course, always stands out so much. It was actually her collage head that you included. I know that your fascination with Eileen Agar started long before this. So I'd love to start off by you telling us about how you actually first came across Eileen Agar. I think my first encounter with her work was at Tate and it was a work that we'll probably talk about later called Angel of Anarchy which she made between 1936 and 1940 and it's a sculpture of her husband's head in white plaster but you can't really see that it's completely wrapped and covered with different textiles feathers are stuck on the feathers sometimes look like clumps of hair sometimes they look like a fantastic hat And I just hadn't ever seen anything like it. I think I was about 17, 18 on a college trip to London from Leeds. And it just blew me away. And I wanted to know more about this person. Yeah. And then discovered that she was this incredible artist who was working between cubism and surrealism. Yeah. So she has this style that I don't think is matched anywhere in Mm. in her generation or since. No, I think that's so right. I think when you see her work, also the the expanse of her work as well, you have paintings, you Mm -hmm. have found objects. And for those who might not be kind of aware of her, I'd love also if you describe the typical aesthetic of Eileen Agar and also where she kind of fits into the history of art as well. So she's a really interesting one because she straddles lots of movements. And often I speak to people about her and they say oh, she's an artist from the 60s, yeah. or oh, she's a surrealist, or mm. oh, she's a cubist. And people come to her from very different directions and then have this conception that she belongs to that movement. But she was very contrary, and she was adamant that she wasn't a cubist, she wasn't a surrealist. So she has this style that, as I said, bridges cubism and surrealism, and then brings into it loads of weird symbolism around the natural <laughs> yes. world, yeah. classical mythology, sexual desire, her identity as a woman, yeah. her identity as never being a mother. All of this stuff kind of swirls it and they're very vibrant paintings. Predominantly, I'd say she's a painter who then works with collage, sculpture and photography, but her medium every day in the studio was painting and her palette is very saturated with blue but it's also very vibrant it's not muted at all no that's for sure she's full of vibrancy and how do you think she created this distinct and spirited style that significantly impacted 20th century culture as well well so she was born in 1899 she was born on the 1st of december 1899 in buenos aires and she always talked about being born a month before the new century. And that's quite important for her. She was born into this quite privileged, very wealthy family, but 
almost old-fashioned and traditional, very Victorian in its values. And so she had this very privileged upbringing in Argentina in a beautiful house that was called the Villa of Lilacs. She was the middle of three sisters, but her parents were very conservative. Her mother wanted her to practice her needlework and her comportment, and she wanted to draw and to write and to ride. She really enjoyed horse riding. So she was quite contrary, quite rebellious, Her mother, when she was six years old, sent her to Britain and went to different various boarding schools and private schools and finishing schools, but felt very trapped and contained by this aspiration for her that she would wait at home for the perfect husband to come and find her. And so she, in various ways, rebelled. She shaved her head. She ran away to Cornwall. And then in 1925, she eventually left home and began travelling. And she went to... Paris, where she first encountered both Cubism and Surrealism. And so I think that quest for vibrancy and freedom sustained her throughout her life. And then she brought elements from Cubism, elements from Surrealism to her practice, but it made her work very unique. Now that's so interesting. I think also we've got to remind ourselves that, yes, she's born in 1899, and actually what she would have witnessed, yeah. you know, World War One, and obviously the imminence of World War Two as well. But I'm fascinated about her childhood. Like you said earlier, mm-hmm. she was born in Buenos Aires and then mm-hmm. travelled to London. I mean, it's interesting also that you should say that about her mother being someone who was quite controlling, because I love this quote about her mother, which is all about her wearing these spectacular hats that took... 40 enormous constructions of straw velvet or fur like frigates under a sail or birds on the wing embellished with vast bows, ribbons or ostrich feathers to the seaside. I mean, they seem like quite liberal people, but do you think having that surrounding her when she was a child also might have informed her artistic vocabulary? I think definitely. I think her mother, I, I really want to know more about, but she seems like quite <laughs> a character full of conflict. So she was very flamboyant. She had these hats. 40 hats and agar goes on to make hats out of found objects which she says she thinks was definitely influenced by the quote is her mother's headgear and she describes her childhood at the villa of lilacs as being full of balloons hoops and st bernard dogs oh my god it's like a surrealist party already i know and then these plagues of locusts that would come every autumn to argentina to kind of eat the harvest yeah and the place where they lived being wind ravaged so i think this kind of really bizarre surreal imagery from her childhood kept surfacing but there's also a lot in her autobiography about her mother being really anxious to show their wealth so I I think the hats were probably part of that yeah and she says in the winter her and her two sisters were forced to wear fur coats in Argentina as kind of a demonstration of their wealth oh my god even though it was never cold enough to wear fur coats (laughs) An excuse to wear them, definitely. (laughs) But then when she did move back to Britain, you mentioned that she went to boarding school. I mean, what happened to her during this time? Because also the imminence of World War One. So she was sent to boarding school at age six on her own, which I think I when I when she writes about it in her autobiography, she says it really matter of factly, but I think you can't underestimate what that does to a six year old child. The whole of the rest of her family is still in Argentina because she's naughty, because she's talked about as being rebellious. And there's an incident where she smacked her nanny, which I think was a direct precursor to her being sent to Britain. But then in 1911, her 
dad retires and the rest of the family return to Britain and she's sent to another boarding school in Ascot called Heathfield School. It's interesting because at Heathfield she's taught by Lucy Kemp Welch, who's a, a kind of acclaimed painter. Okay. Was she a proper artist? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And at Heathfield with Kemp Welch, she's having lessons in art and Kemp Welch makes her promise to always have something to do with art. That's that's a quote that she says. Yeah. And then with the outbreak of World War One, she's evacuated to a different private school in Kent, Tudor Hall, where she's taught by Horace K. Stephen, who introduced... Was he the music master? He was the music master, yeah. yes. And he introduces her to a range of artists and friends and kind of bohemians. Are they physical interactions with these artists or are they just introducing the work? It, physical interactions. Wow, so that they come and they, they teach, they sit in music lessons or they give her drawing lessons. She discusses it as a milieu of art where art is valued as part of daily life. Yeah, that's so fantastic. And I find it really interesting that this is kind of happening under the radar of her parents so they think they're sending her to these private boarding schools (laughs) to become like the perfect wife or whatever and she's in reality having all of these incredible lessons and gaining this artistic foundation yeah and she's a teenager at this point yeah exactly and then how did she then continue with this art education as well after Tudor Hall in Kent, she sent to a finishing school in Kensington. And was where, that kind of what her mother wanted her to yes, do? Yes, exactly. A <laughs> French finishing school and she learns French and she learns comportment and finishes her needlework. And, but she's also having weekly painting lessons at the Byam Shaw School in Kensington. And then she talks about after the war ending that there's a quote where she says she wants to do something worthwhile rather than the repetitive routine of marrying, yeah. which I think... The, the war left a scar on her, definitely, being a teenager and growing up through that. And so she is very aware that if she stays at home with her parents, she's going to have to do this thing. And her elder sister is doing it already, of, yeah. of kind of being introduced to society and finding the perfect match, in inverted commas. It's very interesting because we had an episode on Leonora Carrington recently, uh-huh. and that's exactly what her parents wanted her to do, yep. become this debutante. And yep. she completely rebelled, in a similar way to Eileen Agar, Exactly. Actually. It's so interesting. And then they became friends later yes, on. Yes, yes. But one day, so she's at home, I think she's 20, and her mother has a friend, Lady Clark, who's a patron of the arts and is friends with Renoir and Bonnard and Monet. Amazing. And she comes to visit the house, and Eileen, being Eileen, brings out a bunch of her drawings and paintings that she's made at the Byam Shaw School of Art and shows them to Lady Clark, and Lady Clark implores her to interview at the Slade. She's like, you must, you're fantastic, you can't let this talent. And because... Her mother doesn't want to be embarrassed. She <laughs> agrees. It's actually such a good tactic. Um, and so she interviews at the Slade with the famous Professor Tonks, who tells her she's great, but she should come back when she's a bit older, get okay. some more life experience. So she goes to the Brook Green School in Hammersmith with Leon Underwood as her professor for one year. And she has a fantastic time there. She says that he teaches her the ABC of art and she meets lifelong friends. And then the following year, she reapplies to the Slade and is accepted. And I think at that point, she is showing her parents that this is the path that she's taking and that she's not going to become a debutante. She's going to be an artist. Yeah. And the rift widens and widens. And then she shaves her head and runs away. <gasps> oh my God, I love this. Slade of the 1920s. Because, yeah. I mean, she was studying alongside the likes of Cecil Beaton. I mean, what must have London been like for her at that point? Well, I think, again, conflicted. I think at the Slade, it was an intense time where she felt free. She was surrounded by all these people that had the same ambition as her. Yeah. But 
every night she went home to her parents' house. And I think that was becoming a very difficult thing, which is why she ended up running away. But she was very free, which was another conflict with her, her parents. <laughs> she was in a relationship with a fellow student called Robin Bartlett, who was working class and they weren't married. And her mother okay. was very, very sinful then. Yes. <laughs> so she marries Bartlett. She, she does. She describes him as the escape hatch that lets her es- escape her parents' clutches, yeah. which is maybe cruel. And she's married to him for a year. He's very much in love with her. And then it's 1926 that she marries the Hungarian Joseph Bart. Yes. I mean, how does she meet him? So Bartlett and Agar are at a party together. And she describes it as the shock that puts everything into a new focus. Later on in her autobiography, she draws a parallel between meeting him and the famous surrealist statement of the chance encounter of a sewing machine and an umbrella on a dissecting table. <laughs> but she's, it's that kind of abrupt shock yeah. that brings her out of herself. And as you say, they're together for 50 years. He's the love of her life. Yeah. And so she divorces Bartlett the next year and he's heartbroken, but I think realises they're taking separate paths. Yeah, and do you- know much about what her work was like at this time as well at the Slade? So she, I think when she divorces Bartlett, she leaves the Slade, she destroys all of the work she's made to date. Oh so my God. 1926, she destroys everything. Okay. And I think everything then becomes embroiled with how she felt about her family and the teaching at the Slade was really important, but it was very traditional and very realist. So Tonks, his way of teaching was life drawing. Yeah. And he would just stand behind you and watch you life draw and, and tell you where you were going wrong constantly. Yeah. And then send the students to the National Gallery to copy works by the old masters. And I think she was starting to feel that that was stifling. So she destroys all her work. She divorces Bartlett. She moves in with Bard. And starts, Is it, am I right in thinking it's Virginia Woolf's old flat that they, they, they move into? They move in, yes, in 1927. Which you must just love. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when I read all your that, heroes in one place. <laughs> it's just one line in her autobiography where she's like, and it was the former home of Virginia Woolf. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, it's so interesting what you're saying about, you know, going to the National Gallery and copying these works mm-hmm. because she just must be the most restless person beyond belief yeah. because then she goes to Paris in 1928 and that must just be another shock Mm -hmm. for her. I mean, what happens there? Does she know that Paris is the place to be at this point? She knows that she needs a different type of education. So she's having these conversations with Bard, who, like, their relationship sounds so wonderful. He completely understands. He's like, okay, let's go. We'll go live there, whatever you need. So they go together. And first she meets André Breton and Paul Eloir, and she's introduced to this surrealist circle, which I think at first she finds quite daunting. Eileen, when her father died, even though he disapproved of her choices, he died in 1926, interestingly the same year that she divorces, destroys all her work. Oh my God, wow. It's like a new life. Yeah, it's it's a shedding. She says it's a shedding of the shackles. Wow. She has this inheritance from her father, and she agrees to pay Fulton to be her private tutor. Okay. And they become very close and she learns a lot from him. She always says she doesn't want to work in a completely cubist or abstract way because she sees it as too rational and not emotional or sensual enough. And then, like I said, at the same time, she's having dinner with Breton and Eloire and thinking and talking about surrealism. She never called herself a surrealist she was included in most of the surrealist exhibitions throughout her career she was really I think maybe it comes from her childhood but she was really reluctant to ever label herself as anything yeah 
But I think that's what makes her work so exciting. And I think you've also got to remember that she was a Brit in Paris. Yeah. And then obviously she comes back to Britain and it's how her work develops. And it's how, I think what's interesting is what you can see she's exposed to. So she's seen Brat Picasso. Mm-hmm. But she really applies her own perspective on exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. And all of that stuff and baggage from her childhood yeah. she brings to it. And all that excitement as yeah. well, I can yeah, imagine. Yeah. You just want her to set free in a way. <laughs> and what do you think she learned in Paris? She learned about composition, she learned about form, she learned about juxtaposition of colour. And then from the Surrealists, she learned about bringing in the subconscious and letting all those kind of sensual desires and anxieties come into the work. So the first work that she makes, combining these kind of Cubist and Surrealist influences, is The Flying Pillar, which is later renamed Three Symbols. And it's made between 1928 and 1930. So So this is while she's living in Paris. Exactly. And it's made between Paris and London. And it's a bonkers work it's three symbols as the later title says and they are a a kind of flying classical pillar which she says is a reference to greek antiquity also flying in the sky the facade of notre dame which she recognizes a kind of symbol of christianity and medievalism interesting and at the bottom grounding the painting is a bridge designed by Gustav Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower. She talks about this as kind of symbolising the advent of modernity. So this painting for her is about positioning herself within these huge art historical and cultural moments. Incredible. But kind of setting them free as well. So the pillar and and Notre Dame are flying in the sky. It's one of the few works for her that is very pastel. Yeah. My reading of it is influenced by later works when she's very much talking about the way that she paints as a woman and positioning in herself within these pillars of patriarchy in a way. And she has these later theories about her moment of painting as being a shedding of these patriarchal weights. So it's almost like she's flinging Greek antiquity and flinging medieval Christianity into the air and allowing herself to travel on this road which runs under the bridge yeah um it's so interesting you should say that you know she it was made between london and paris because i think there's so much movement mm -hmm. in this work as well it's so imaginative it's these flying forms these flying historic moments these historic pillars of patriarchy and there's bridge that i mean it's it feels like there's a train already running through it Mm -hmm. it feels so modern and also so imaginative and inventive it feels like something completely new i'd love to see it in real life it's at Tate. <laughs> it's at Tate for those. <laughs> um, but it's also really, really surreal. And then she later says that, it's, though she acknowledges later that it looks surreal, she it was never painted with that intention. So yeah. it's the first kind of testing of all of these influences and then she recognises what's happening to her, but she's not quite aware of it when she's painting it. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Maybe it's just me, but I don't know, the palette almost looks quite like modern British mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah, yeah, and it's quite pastoral. Yes, and you, and you can see all these different influences and actually the speed of the train as well almost reminds me of futurism or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's combining so many things. And I think for a young artist, so she was in her mid-twenties when she made this. It's explorative. It's kind of finding out what she's enjoying and what she wants to make. So she moves back to London in 1930. Yes. Why is this? I think, so Bard is very, very, he's a Britophile. He's Hungarian, (laughs) but he loves Britain. He enjoys spending time in London. So they've spent a couple of years in Paris, but they return to London. And I think... The political situation that was happening in Europe as well, I think they probably felt like they needed to be 
what Agar called home. So they return to London and they move into a flat in Kensington that they have the interior custom made by her friend from Brooke Green, Rodney Thomas, who's now qualified as an architect and designs for her this amazing furniture, which she turns into a studio. And, wow. um, and she, Are there still images of this? So it's um, the majority of... The furniture is now at the V&A. Okay. Because he went on to become a kind of acclaimed architect oh in his God, own I right. Oh my God, I see this. So he makes her a clock and a wardrobe and this kind of mantelpiece, which she then surrounds with this ever-changing collage of postcards and images that she cuts out from magazines. It's kind of her working memory board or something. And she puts textiles and feathers and stones and shells, all the found objects that she constantly is acquiring wow. on this mantelpiece. She says it could be like a Matisse studio one day, a De Chirico studio the next day, and that it changes like the tides of the sea. So every yeah. day different flotsam and jetsam washes up on the walls of her studio. And why was she so fascinated? Because I mean, it's interesting that you say that she kept all these shells and everything on mantel pieces. Mm. Why was she so fascinated with the beach and shells. She's really interested in how an object can change. It's a surrealist fascination, but how an object changes when you put it next to another one. So that yes. thing on the dissecting table of the umbrella and the sewing machine, she's yeah. fascinated by what happens if you stick a ram's horn on a Greek amphora, which is one of her much later works, or yeah. what if you cover a tiny human skull with pearls, which she does as one of her first ever assemblages. She's really interested in what, in the history that objects bring, but then how that can be changed and what it can do to your perception of the object if you twist that and put something else next to it. Yeah. But also at this time, she's making one of her most important pieces that's in the Tate Collection, which is the autobiography of an embryo. Just to go back to this interest in fossils as well, I love this quote by her. She says, I was enthralled by fossils, their muted colour and embedded beauty. They reach us as signals in time, isolated objects which take on the importance of a problem resolved at some moment far back beyond the mists of human memory. I learned about the secrets of animal structure and from there my thoughts led easily to the problem of human structure. And I think it's <laughs> it's fascinating, you know. In a way, her mind almost works in this quite surreal way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and everything becomes very grand. Yeah. Like a fossil takes her to <laughs> the problems of humanity. But she's making us think about these objects in a completely different way, which is also interesting because the way that she then uses found objects sure. is the way that creating new vocabulary and dialogue yeah, yeah, within exactly. these objects. So this work that we're talking about, the autobiography of an embryo, is, like you said, it has all of those found objects in, but they're painted. Yeah. So she's exploring the interest of those objects to her through this theory of womb magic, which is about kind of what she calls women's creativity and, and the influence of women, or the influence that she thinks women could have on this kind of rising fascist Europe and it's kind of the life cycle of an embryo or of life beginning and it's a f huge painting it's yeah. seven foot long oh my gosh it's four panels divided by these three Doric columns and then in the four panels are all these circular motifs of shells of fossils of embryos of cellular forms that are surrounded by floating bits of cloud and plant and natural form it almost looks like this kind of cupboard of curiosities in mm -hmm. a way exactly it's almost like you're looking at that mantelpiece yeah. of, her, yes. of her found objects totally. and postcards this work is seen as one of her early masterpieces but it wasn't shown until much much later when she was actually moving studio after Bard died in 1975. Wow. It had, hadn't been seen. What was the reaction when it was seen in the 70s? Well, I think she was quite 
anxious about it because I think for yeah. her it's also a very personal painting. Yes. And she worked on her autobiography with a fantastic art historian called Andrew Lambeth who became a friend and he was helping her move studio. He found it in the eaves of her attic. Oh my God, that's And so unrolled it and persuaded her that she should share it with the world. Yeah. And she did and Tate snapped it up so it's also now in the Tate collection. But I think the personal nature of it meant that she was a bit nervous to show it. So this was made in about 1933 and then mm-hmm. in 19... 19- 34, she spends the summer in Swanage in Dorset, mm-hmm. where she meets Paul Nash. And yes. this was very kind of important in a way for her career and love life. But <laughs> <laughs> Hugely important. But also for Nash's career, which yes. is something that as an Agar fan and a fan of women artists is that she's often talked about through Nash. Yes. And well, let's talk about how she inspired him. Exactly. How she inspired him. Exactly. So her and Bard took a cottage in Swanage for the summer of 1934. And when they were there, they were invited to a dinner that Nash and his wife Margaret were going to be at. And he was in Dorset creating the Dorset Shell Guide, which is interesting for both of them. <laughs> and she had admired his work for a long time and he had admired her work for a long time, but they hadn't actually met. And when they met, they just they found this kind of kindred creative spirit as you said they did go on to have an affair which kind of broke bard's heart and margaret's heart yes they were very open about it it wasn't a secret she always told bard that she was never going to leave him that he was the love of her life that that this thing with nash was a kind of a creative synergy okay because also am i right in thinking when she was at tudor hall the music master actually introduced her to work with paul nash yes exactly very exciting she'd admired his work for a long time from being a teenager so meeting him was significant and it was for him as well meeting her so they together explored Swanage Bard was writing a book so he was at home a lot so Eileen and Nash went out a lot and explored the beaches but it was actually one evening she was walking with Bard not Nash that she discovered this thing on the beach which became huge for both her and Nash and it she called it a sea monster it was a huge snaky creature encrusted with marine accretions these are her words <laughs> not uh, yours uh, not mine <laughs> hers are very dramatic and seaweed and starfish and bits and pieces and covered in sand and she said it was kind of peeking up out of the sand and she thought it was a monster <gasps> she uncovered it and it turned out to be an old anchor chain that had been in the sea for a long time and had washed up. She photographed it and painted it and fetched Nash, who came down and was also enthralled by it. And it went on to feature in his really famous collage called Swanage, which is a photograph of the sea monster. She carried it back to London with her and it stayed in in her flat, but sadly it was destroyed in the Blitz. So all we have of it are these photographs and watercolours and collages that the pair made. But I think for both of them, it was a really pivotal moment in looking at what the natural world can make in terms of found objects and assemblage. So the sea monster was what she was making in her own found object assemblages, but it was naturally made rather than Agar made. Yeah, absolutely. And then in 1936, this was when she meets Roland Penrose, who was the husband of the great artist Lee Miller, and Herbert Reed, who were the organisers of the London International Surrealist Exhibition at New Burlington Gardens, which was one of the most significant Mm -hmm. exhibitions of surrealism of all time. Sure. So they came to her studio as research for this International Surrealism Exhibition, as you said. And she describes this as a complete shock she says one day she's making her own work in her own unique style and the next day she's calmly being informed she's a surrealist 
And she was delighted. And she went on to exhibit three paintings and five found objects and sculptures in the Surrealism exhibition. She's one of the only British women alongside Sheila Legg to exhibit in the exhibition, which is hugely significant and kind of catapulted her career from that point on. I think it's interesting as well, looking at the paintings and the found objects kind of side by side because both inform each other Mm -hmm. so much. And it's interesting that she was really kind of anti being categorised as a surrealist. I mean, she said, you know, I'm suspicious about the whole idea of working from dreams. And she was also uneasy with an excitement about automatism as Mm. something that was supposed to bypass conscious control and draw directly on the deep springs on the unconscious. And do you think that's really where she disassociates from the surrealists. Her work is not about dreams. It's about real life. Exactly. I think she sees dreams and the subconscious and subconscious desire and sex and anxiety as part of real life. I think she's kind of much more in touch with those emotions anyway that she doesn't need to access her unconscious and people rarely say this but I think she just doesn't believe that automatism is a thing I think she says she's she'll put herself in a receptive state she'll kind of sit and have a drink and think about what she's going to do and then paint or collage or sculpt from that mind state but I don't think she believes quite the promise of automatism is completely unconscious I think good for her you know saying that as well she clearly knew exactly what she new in a way and why she was making work yeah and I think that again going back to that child of having to constantly reinforce why she wanted to make art made her really know why she was doing it and what she was doing yeah and I think when you see a work I mean you touched on it earlier in the introduction but Angel of Anarchy which is in the Tate's collection as well which was made from 1936 to 40 is just this incredible skull figure of I mean the most bizarre objects put together and I think actually I remember seeing this I think at first on Instagram just thinking who was that by? And yeah. I just had no idea that it was by someone who was working in the 1930s. In the 30s, I know, exactly. It looks like it could be from the 80s. Yeah, or the 2000s, yeah. or whatever. I mean, it's so inventive. Why do you think she was so interested in putting all these different objects together? So the work came out of, which is funny, she says that Joseph had the perfect profile. So she was constantly wanting to draw and sculpt his profile. And she saw this bust that her previous tutor, Leon Underwood, had made of Bard, a kind of classical bust in white marble. And she said it didn't look anything like him because it didn't have any of his personality. And so she cast his head and sent it away to come back to her in plaster cast and when she got them back she was absolutely mortified because she said they looked like death masks because it was just his face in white plaster and so terrified she attacked this plaster head with (laughs) all of the fabric and textiles and and shells and dice and feathers and bits and pieces from her studio and the image that we have become accustomed to is actually the second version. So the first version was made in 1934 and it was exhibited in 1937 in a a second Surrealism exhibition in Amsterdam. And it was named actually after Herbert Reed's introduction to that show. So Surrealism was becoming at the time much more political, much more anti-fascist as the Spanish Civil War was happening. And Herbert Reed in his introduction to this exhibition says to visitors, approach for we have angels of anarchy inside. And Agon names this sculpture after his introduction, the angel of anarchy. And it's kind of tribute to Bard as anti-fascist and pacifist and it being a portrait of him, but also this kind of political 
comment. She then blindfolds it because she says that the future of Europe is so uncertain that we can't see what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I should add, you know, this is made at the imminence of World War II. Exactly, exactly. And so the first version is sent to Amsterdam for this exhibition, and she says, the sculpture proved to be so anarchic that it never returned. (gasps) It was lost forever. So the version that we see, and which is now in Tate, and which I saw as a teenager, is the second version. It's interesting as well, you know, because if you look at photographs of her as well, she's she seems very obsessed with accessorising and yes. kind of hats and a bit like her mother with those uh-huh. 40 hats of straw or something. But, you know, she was working at the same time as someone like Frida Kahlo. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so unaware if they knew of each other or anything. What I have to comment on is the fact that, you know, to be an artist who's a woman, sometimes the way that you look isn't mm-hmm. taken into account. But, you know, I think we have to celebrate the fact that she loved accessorising mm-hmm. and loved fashion because she's influenced, you know, people even working now in that industry. And she comments on that. So just to go back to Angel of Anarchy, the other thing that is exciting for me is that it's a portrait of her husband, but it's really androgynous. Yeah. It could be any gender. And Bard was kind of really fluid and open to that depiction of him. But she talks about surrealism as being an inherently patriarchal and misogynistic movement. And she talks about that and how the men of surrealism were really hypocritical. And they had double standards in terms of who they slept with, their love lives, and also depicting women as muses. So often she was frustrated by the fact that they wanted to paint her or photograph her, as with Lee Miller, as with Dora Maar. And so she was really aware of that, but she says that the way they dressed, the women of Surrealism, was not about pandering to male desires or expectations, but it was a living enactment of the Surrealist terms in a way so she was like if I wear a scaparelli dress or a scaparelli hat and I act outrageously and say outrageous things that's an embodiment of surrealism that is me living it and so I think her interest in accessories and interest in fashion and interest in glamour was all tied up with that yeah that's so interesting and I I have to mention this just because it's come up in the Leonora Carrington and the Lee Miller Mm. episodes but she is on that kind of famous trip as well in Cornwall she is in 1937 (laughs) Um, (laughs) there are some fantastic Photo- I don't know if this is particularly relevant to her career, but, you know, she was really amongst Lee Miller, Leonora Carrington, mm-hmm. all these surrealists. They were such a kind of vibrant group. Yeah, I think at that time, she that, t- that trip taught her a lot about photography because she was with Lee Miller and she was introduced to Dora Maar. And I think in that sense, she was only starting to experiment with photography in the mid to late 30s. And I think that trip taught her that she could have photographs of herself as well. And she made this incredible work, Ladybird of 1936, which is a photograph that Bard took of her naked dancing, which she then collaged over the top of. And so even her husband is kind of using her as a muse, but then she takes it, she reappropriates it, and she draws all over it. And then obviously World War II breaks out because it's interesting, surrealism... It doesn't die, it just becomes something else. Mm-hmm. All these movements become something else. You know, it really affects Paris, it affects London and everything. Sure. What happened to her career after this? And I think the war hugely affected her. I think yeah. it probably affected everyone yeah. at the time, but she stops making work. So she says that she found it really hard to make work. The war overwhelmed me. I felt it impossible to concentrate on a painting when I could look out of the window and see over the treetops a Messerschmitt flying. 
and later on she says, how can I make work with any subtlety when Europe is filled with the noise of explosions? It affects her massively and her mother dies in 1942, a couple of months after her home is destroyed. So she has a lot of loss during the war. She and Joseph are pacifists. They don't want to get involved with the violence of war, but they want to help at home. So she volunteers at a canteen on Savile Row that serves hot meals to civil servants and they both become night fire watch people waiting up on the roofs and at their London home they host many people fleeing the continent and so she just stops making work for yeah. six years and I don't think that she can reconcile standing in her studio painting with that kind of huge thing that's happening outside. I mean you just couldn't could you it's 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 interesting, you know, she lived through World War One and mm. World War Two, and yeah. actually what effect both had on her. But then she dies in 1991. I mean, does she get back to work? So after the war, they start travelling again, and that's important for her. Joseph couldn't write, she couldn't paint. They both felt trapped. She said she felt cooped up being in London. So they start travelling again, and at first they can't travel outside of Britain, so they go to Ireland, the Lake District, and Cornwall. And then eventually they start travelling in Europe and they go by chance to Tenerife. And it's interesting thinking about Tenerife in kind of contemporary yeah. <laughs> thought. But for her in the 50s it became huge. And she talks about the subtropical climate and the plants and the volcanic landscape and the sun as having a huge impact on her. So they go in 1953 and that's really when she gets back into painting. So it's a long time after the war ends. Yeah. And she does some beautiful watercolours and frottages. So she's still using surrealist technique. And then slowly, slowly, she starts to kind of reaffirm her joy for painting. Yeah. And there's a lovely quote from her in the late 50s where she's like, surely we must be able to make room for joy again. Yeah. And then, then it's like she's getting back to herself and we can see the vibrancy and we can see the sensuality of her work come back. Totally. And I think when you look at her work, it's just full of life and just enthusiasm for mm -hmm. it and vibrancy and you can tell that she just loved looking on her travels and yeah, everything yeah and collecting yes. and collecting things fascinated with the objects. landscape and everything yeah so how does her work then develop technically in these later times in her life so in 1965, probably the most significant thing is that she discovers acrylic paint and it's kind of a new medium and she starts experimenting with it and she's absolutely fascinated by how quick drying it is, how quickly she can use it, how she can layer it. Was this a new medium for that time? It was fairly new for okay. the time. And I think she also sees it as kind of a post-war, a, a new thing that they can move on from those old, again, like throwing off shackles. She's constantly evolving. Yeah, yeah. And acrylic paint for her opens up lots of doors and, and windows. And in 1971, she has a big solo exhibition of 76 paintings at the Commonwealth Galleries. And she paints a significant number of huge new canvases with acrylic. One of the paintings, Slow Movement, became talked about as a late masterpiece. Yeah, It's absolutely beautiful. It's based on an image that she had, a postcard that she had of the throne of Ludovici, a Roman marble panel which shows Aphrodite being raised from the sea by two women. And though obviously her style is completely different to that classical marble carving, what she's interested in is the upward movement of these women, of lifting Aphrodite out of the sea and yeah. the energy in that. And that work kind of reinvigorated her for the next 10 years mm. and she continued painting in this very optimistic and very life-affirming yeah. way. So then in 1990, she's awarded 
a Royal Academy edition, which is kind of like one of the highest accolades in art. And she's also really surprised by this. I mean, I, I'd love to have met her. She sounds like a, the most fascinating person. But, you know, what happened in her later life? Why do you think that she was surprised when she got that accolade? She found it hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I think she'd always found the Academy as this kind of funny institute of old men. And at the time when she was coming up, so when she was at the Slade, the Academy refused to admit any surrealists and they refused to admit any experimental painters or even abstract painters when she was very young. And and so I think she always thought of it as kind of this cupboard of stuffiness yeah. that she would never be interested in or accepted into. But then obviously in 1990, she's 90 years old. And so that recognition is actually quite important to her and, and she accepts. And also live to see it as well, I think, is, is important. How do you think that she's been remembered today and what do you think her work really says about society today? I think in terms of how she's remembered I think what I would like is that people see the breadth of her career so like I said at the beginning people often see her as this almost pop artist working in the 60s and 70s with acrylic paint enthusiastic vibrant paintings but and then or they recognize her as a surrealist or as a cubist but I think when you look at those three things together, that breadth of interest and style is really significant. I hope that she's being more recognised. I hope people are starting to come to see her work and think about her work. Because obviously you curated her in my favourite exhibition of all time, Virginia Woolf, an exhibition inspired by her writings. And that was full of contemporary artists as well as those working pre-war. Mm-hmm. I guess, how does she speak to younger artists today. I think the most exciting thing for me about Agar is that she straddles that time. She's an artist that straddles late Victorianism, both world wars, through to contemporary. She died in 1991. That's crazy. That's in my lifetime. And she was born in 1899. And to have lived through that and to have painted through that and to have continued making work through that, I think if placing her in an exhibition, I think that's what we should show that's our responsibility to show that length of career and what do you think she's taught you she's teaching me (laughs) self-assurance to kind of believe that what you're doing is good and to hold on to it in a time when everything is changing I mean like you said so much change in her life but she maintained her style and her passion for art throughout it didn't waver yeah absolutely thank you so much laura and as this is the great woman artist podcast we always ask our guests and i know that you've been mulling this over for some time now if eileen agar was sitting in your kitchen today where we are with quite heavy rain sorry about that (laughs) what would you say to her well it's very cheesy but first i would say thank you for just everything for having that self-belief yeah I think I would also want to talk to her about how she felt about being discussed through the work of men. Yeah. I'd like to have that conversation with her about how she is now a kind of adage to Paul Nash's career or to the Surrealists. I'd like to explore that with her. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Laura. Pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all so much for listening to the 21st episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the completely brilliant Laura Smith on her hero, the great Eileen Agar. It was so fascinating to hear all about Agar's work in depth. I learned so much and I also loved hearing Laura's genuine passion for such a great artist. This podcast was sound edited by the great Amber Miller and if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps people find us. The Great Woman Artist podcast is going to be taking a couple of weeks 
break. But we will be back very soon with some extremely exciting guests. And of course, thank you for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Now on its 20th year, the Affordable Art Fair will be back in beautiful Battersea Park from the 12th to the 15th of March and on Hampstead Heath from the 30th of April to the 3rd of May. Each fair showcases over 100 galleries, bringing together over a thousand original artworks with everything from limited edition prints by well-known names to curated selection of ones to watch. To book tickets and shop over 10,000 hand-picked artworks, simply visit affordableartfair.com. As you can probably tell, visiting museums is one of my favourite activities and thanks to the National Art Pass, you can now access free entry to over 240 museums, galleries and historic houses across the UK, plus 50% off major exhibitions including the British Museum and Tate. Membership is just £73 per year and for those under 30, it's £45. Just go to artfund.org forward slash great. Thanks to our sponsor, the National Art Pass, for making this podcast possible.